Good morning. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. and Alternative Parties Books Publisher sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Austin, welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. Friends, today we have Austin Pomper from the Monarchist Party USA. He's going to tell us all about his political party. So welcome, Austin. If we can get started by you kindly giving us an introduction to yourself, a brief background, biographical sketch, that would be great. Sure. Um, So I'm, uh, well, I'm rather a a younger individual. I'm uh, recently 24 years old as of April. Um, But I've always been interested in history and politics. um, And I would have gone to uh, university for history or probably political science, but I chose a different path. Um, Environmental science is what I'm now uh, studying in college. But uh, ever since I was young, I always remembered that I loved learning about history. I was never one to really um, play with my younger cousins or any kids my age. I remember I would always sit with the older um, members of my family or any of their friends. And I would just listen to them talk and I would ask them stories um, about their life. And I always loved learning about that. Uh, Politics was a different issue altogether uh, that I probably had to learn on my own, um, at least the study of it, because if there were two things in the house that none of us ever talked about, it was uh, politics or religion. That was the rule. No one ever talks about that. So um, ever since I was young, I always remembered that those were the two things that interested me the most. And I think that those were, um, that's the whole reason why I decided I wanted to at least do something because I had the ability to study uh, topics, study history, um, political philosophy and thought. um, And I was able to incorporate it um, into my memory. Uh, So I think that's what led me down this path. And I figured, well, if anybody could do something, it might as well be myself, or at least someone needs to try something. All right, that sounds good. So what ultimately led you to starting the Monarchist Party USA? Well, I think it was um, really just seeing how politics has evolved in the United States. Um, So I don't know how many of uh, how many people can remember um, so far back, but um, let's just take the past two decades in in context. um, We start in uh, 2000 and everything seems to be great. A year later, you get uh, 9-11 and then we start the wars in, uh, in Afghanistan and in the Middle East. And there were soldiers just now fighting in those wars that weren't even born at the time when the conflicts really started. Um, then fast forward a few more years, we're getting into the second Bush term and the crash of 2007, 2008. Um, the Obama presidency, the controversies in the Supreme Court and surrounding many of uh, yeah, the court's uh, jurisdictional measures, um, 
then again to the uh, the presidency of the last president, uh, Donald Trump, um, and that had been even more controversial. Um, the political divides were increasingly strained. Um, the political divides had been strained since the Bush presidency, and probably even before then, we're talking back into the 90s, when uh, Supreme Court nominations especially were in the news. Um, so let's say for Robert Bork and uh, I think uh, Judge Clarence Thomas. So you're, you're really seeing over the decades, you're seeing how the political divides have become more and more of a public affair. So in, in the past, like years past, people didn't really care too much. They were focusing on their own lives and now politics has taken on an increasingly civil platform. And I think that uh, that I really saw that as dangerous um, for the, the survival of our community, for the ability of the citizens to interact, to talk with one another. Um, it seems any, any and everything is political these days. Um, nothing we can all just agree on is true or is um, is something that we should all be focusing on. Uh, everything takes on a political dimension even when it shouldn't be doing so. So I thought to myself, well, perhaps it's uh, an overinvestment in politics and populism that's the problem. And so that's why I decided to uh, found, uh, found the UMP. Okay, so what does your party stand for? What are its beliefs and planks and the like well um to in order to hit the the end goal one uh, a few things need to be done and the first especially if i'm going to explain it is to uh clarify some terms so usually when most people think about monarchy they imagine absolute power in the hands of one person but actually monarchy and monarchism and the political thought and theory that is that surrounds that um, has been developed for centuries um, and it's not power in the hands of one person monarchy like most things is a is a spectrum uh, and the opposite the opposing government of monarchy is not democracy it's a republic a republic is a government that doesn't have any kind of um, uh, monarchical power at all in the sense of it being hereditary. Democracy is really the amount of direct control that the wider citizenry has over the entirety of government or in certain parts of the government. So even in our current government in the United States, the citizens do not elect Supreme Court justices. They don't elect um, any appointments to executive positions in any of the departments, not even on the cabinet. They don't even really elect the vice president. The vice president is chosen by the person who runs for president. Um, uh, so that those are those are some of the things that I wanted to to clarify, especially going into it, not only in my interview with you today, but also moving forward in the future that 
monarchy doesn't um, equal the stereotype that people will automatically hold for it. Um, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, so my basic end goal was that I saw that our problems were due to an overinvestment in um, extremist political rhetoric and the political divide. And that has to do with the fact that the, uh, the electoral process almost infects everything. The Supreme Court is controversial, not because they're not elected, but because the person who appoints the, the justices are elected by partisan and divisive means. Um, it's really 51% lording over the 49%. Um, so those were those are things that need to happen as a prerequisite. They need to be put into mainstream thought. They need to be recognized as such in order for our movement, our party to get anywhere, because otherwise it won't. Uh, people hold on to their prejudices too strongly. So those need to break down first. Okay, so you have probably re received objections to your beliefs. What objections have you faced and how do you overcome them? What would you say in response? Um, well, the, the objections I've had mostly fall on the, the grounds of representation. The fact that any kind of hereditary power is, uh, you know, it's anti-democratic. And mostly when people say anti-democratic, they're speaking about representation. And this gets into the philosophy and theory of representation. And briefly, there are two main schools. There's the Whig school, uh, W. H-I-G. It's um, a term from the um, English Civil Wars, but I, I don't know in, in where it originates, um, but it comes from the 17th century at least. And it's the theory of parliamentarianism, that it takes the theory of representation to mean an image of the, of the collective. So the country, the nation is numerous, the people are numerous, they have different jobs, they have different responsibilities, they are different, they act different. So to represent somebody, you have to be in the image of that person. So you need to speak like them, you need to act like them, you need to be like them. And the governing body that is sovereign should be a legislature that is a miniature of the collective. So that's the Whig theory of representation. On the other side of that, there's the Royalist or Tory theory of representation, which base authorization. It's basically saying, no, what it means to represent somebody is to be authorized to do so. And that authorization can come in a number of forms. That authorization can come via direct vote or direct voice and say, I cast my vote for that person. Therefore, I authorize them to speak and act in my name and government. That's one thing authorization in terms of uh, political or governmental power can also be a, a more nuanced thing or a more kind of a gray area where 
our ancestors have recognized this family as being the leaders of our of our nation and so we'll just continue with that the people are at liberty to authorize hereditary institutions elective institutions legislatures a certain number of electors to choose who represents everybody or a combination of all of them so it's not that you need to look and act and speak like the people in order to represent the people but the people need to authorize you to speak and act in their name uh, so and that can happen in a number of different ways but at its core the two are different the Whig understanding is based in um, populism majority rule and majority sovereignty but its danger comes from that as long as enough people approve of uh of certain things of certain measures they can tyrannize minorities and so you get the tyranny of the majority mob rule demagoguery and all that stuff on the other side of that the tory philosophy is based on that you can have you can authorize any of these um, different institutions and they are representative institutions so from their perspective a hereditary sovereign or a combination of a hereditary sovereign and a legislature can represent people they are just as much representative as anything else and that's what you need to deny in order to believe in the Whig position that a monarch or any other kind of institution that you do not vote for cannot represent anything. Only a legislature can. The other side of that, the royalist philosophy, is that's completely wrong. They are representative and they have indeed done so in the past. All right, that makes sense. So I'm wondering, are there any models in the world that you would say are good models for monarchism. For example, I have visited Swaziland a couple of times and I spent months there and I got to experience monarchy firsthand. Now I was a visitor of course, so it's not the same as living there full time, but I did get a taste of it. And a lot of people criticize Swaziland for those who know who with that it exists. A lot of people don't, mm. and, but to me, it seemed like it was, it was all right. It, they didn't seem to be as bad as people made it out to be. So, so is that or any other places a good example that you want to emulate? Um, I would, I would think so. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of a um, it's sort of a cliche, at least among monarchist circles, or at least among certain circles within um, that uh, Liechtenstein the. Principality of Liechtenstein between Austria and Switzerland is um, is a decent model, but also that we really wouldn't want to change much in the United States except merely transform the executive, the presidency, into a hereditary monarchy. Um, and for all of the reasons you know I had I had mentioned previously, you know the political divides do not lend itself to good governance. Um, I, I believe that the executive should be impartial, should be neutral, should be 
nonpartisan when it involves itself in the political discourse. So rather than adding to the vitriol, it tames those wild and extreme passions. And maybe we can get to better places as a result. Um, and the founders actually structured the United States government on that mostly of Britain of the 17th century. Um, and that was for very deliberate reasons. So just briefly, the, um, the English monarchy at the time of the American Revolution, you know, aside from all the propaganda, George III is a tyrant, Declaration of Independence, what, what have you, the English monarchy at that time was weaker than the presidency that the founders had created. And what the founders had created was really a revival of the English constitution before the English civil wars. So to kind of place all of these offices, king, lords, and commons, or president, senate, and house ruling together, they need to have consensus. They need to have agreement among each other in order for the country to be governed effectively. And the only issue that I have with that is that the presidency is becoming more and more of a divisive figure rather than the unifying figure that the founders had intended. At the time that they wrote the Constitution, there were no political parties, but now there are. And they go all the way down and, in, and infect every area of life. So it might be necessary in order to alter it in that way. So in terms of do I have any idea of current monarchies that might um, that I take inspiration from, I, I would say Liechtenstein. But again, each monarchy, each government is connected to the area in which they are, connected to the people, connected to their place in the world. So it's not um, it's not always easy to kind of pick that out. I see. So it has to be contextual to what's the environment that it comes from. It has to reflect that, huh? Yeah. And a lot of people will criticize the different forms of monarchy, especially, let's say, France under Louis XIV and the 15th and all these other monarchies. But we have to understand them in the context of their time. I mean, Louis XIV was rather successful, but he created a new form of monarchy that France had not seen up till that point. And his successor was his great grandson. And so his great grandson's father and grandfather both died um, when he was still young. So he was not the intended heir. And so really the only issue with the French type of monarchy was not in the person that held the throne, but in the type of monarchy that it was. It didn't have the built-in flexibility, the built-in civil protections that would um, help alleviate the strains caused by maybe somebody who was not yet fit to hold the office or somebody who was ill-prepared, um, somebody who maybe was emotionally, intellectually, unequipped to hold the office. So it was not so much that monarchy had failed, 
it was that that form of monarchy had failed, that it didn't have the flexibility that you need when dealing with that type of government. Oftentimes, the way people perceive it is religion and monarchy has gone hand in hand, like certain kings have pledged allegiance or made their government in alliance with a certain religion. And that's still happening in some place like Saudi Arabia, for example. They have a monarchy, yet it's also a religious monarchy. So would you see the United States as being able to transcend that? Or do you think there's something that needs to be done to make sure that doesn't happen if we have a monarchy? I think the United States can transcend it. I don't see any need to create a combined theocracy with civil monarchy type of deal. Um, people do get rather nervous when talking about those kinds of subjects. And, you know, historically, I can understand why. Um, but I see no reason why to change uh, those, those things, especially in terms of religious tolerance and freedom that the United States has been built on all of these years. Um, just looking back, at least to one example, um, take Frederick II of Prussia, or as many people know him, Frederick the Great. Um, he was an enlightened monarch, student of Voltaire. Um, he wrote his Anti-Machiavel, which was a treatise on political philosophy and monarchist thinking, which I would um, actually encourage any listeners to uh, read if they get a chance. And it's... What's that again? Uh, beg pardon? What, what's that title again? It's um, Anti-Machiavel. It's a treatise that was written by Frederick II of Prussia in opposition to Machiavelli's prince. Um, and it states out the, the philosophy of monarchism. And what he had done in his life, um, aside from you know the two Austrian wars, the Silesian wars, and um, all of the other battles he had fought, he um, believed in religious tolerance among uh, other things. And one of the things he had done um, during his reign was to build, um, I believe it's in Berlin, but I could be wrong, was to build what's known as St. Hedwig's Cathedral. And the earliest wars he had fought against Austria when he took the throne were to take the province of Silesia. And Silesia was primarily a Catholic area but Prussia was a Protestant kingdom. And so it was not uncommon at that time to tolerate a religious minority within the boundaries of your, your kingdom or empire. But St. Hedwig was the patron saint of Silesia. So he built a Catholic cathedral in the center of his Protestant capital. It was a Catholic cathedral for the Catholic subjects of his kingdom. That was very different from anything that had gone before because it was a king creating a monument for tolerance as a value in itself. How, how would a monarchy have accountability to prevent the absolute power from reigning? One of the arguments people make for our type of government is the checks and balances. So how would a monarchy have checks and balances? Um, to have checks and balances, it, it, uh, it's basically what we have now, you know, the legislature that checks the presidency. Um, so 
uh, this goes into, you know, even some of the writings of our founding fathers. Um, it, Alexander Hamilton was surprisingly a royalist, despite his modern um, uh, perception. Um, John Adams was, uh, James Iredell, James Wilson, a whole lot of others. And Alexander Hamilton wrote in his pamphlet, The Farmer Refuted, um, and you can find his pamphlet and others on the U.S. archives online. It's very simple. He writes that the, uh, I might get the wording slightly wrong, but the king is the only true sovereign of the empire. The part which the people have in the legislature may more justly be seen as a limitation of the sovereign authority to prevent its use in despotic ways. Um, so he wrote that then in 1775. And um, it, that's just a long tradition that a legislature um, is not a representative and the king is merely himself, but that the legislature is there to check the ambitions of the sovereign. Thomas Aquinas, many centuries before, wrote in De Regno, um, that's his book, um, that uh, that education is a way to um, limit uh, despotism because basically to enlighten yourself, to be a virtuous and non-despotic figure is to educate yourself, almost to be a philosopher, a philosopher king in the Platonic and Aristotelian sense. And that makes sense because Thomas Aquinas was a studier, uh, a student, I'm sorry, of Aristotle and of the classic philosophers. So that trend goes all the way back. So checks and balances is useful, making sure that um, the successors are educated. I'm personally in favor of having a, gr uh, a great many of the heirs be educated in how to assume the office. Some have suggested at least 10 in the line of succession. Um, mostly that's just put up as a hedge against the very real possibility that, um, that one might die or pass away young, and many have in the past. But our medicine now is uh, uh, great at preventing that, at least. But another way is exactly what the presidency has built in, that in case of med medical incapacitation or insanity, the cabinet takes over which is basically nothing more than a Regency Council. All right, that makes sense. So how would the United States transform itself into a monarchy? What do you see the process being? Well, firstly is educating the wider public. You know, the wider public has the idea from school, from grade school, university, all this stuff, that the American Revolution was a rebellion against George III. That um, has been challenged in recent years, and it's challenged by not only the writings of the Founding Fathers themselves, but their public writings, their private correspondence, and by historians who have dug up this material, most prominently 
uh, Professor Eric Nelson of Harvard University. Um, he wrote his book, The Royalist Revolution, on this subject, but it's by no means the only one. Um, so firstly is to educate the American populace. That's one, because you can't move without that. Um, secondly is probably to at least throw our hats into the wider political ring. Um, either we put um, candidates forward for various political offices or we hold conventions and we educate people on this. Let's say we get to that point where we do hold political office. Eventually, we would need to hold enough seats in the Congress or the various states to create an amendment to the Constitution. Some have suggested that we start an entirely new constitutional convention. Uh, one has not been called since 1787. So this would be the second major constitutional convention in over 200 years. So we would need to do that. Then we would need to discuss and deliberate. In my point of view, not much would change. The presidency or what was the presidency, the future, um, the future office of the monarchy would hold all of the constitutionally granted powers um, of the presidency but no more, no more than what is already given. The only thing that would really change is that it would turn into a hereditary office. Some have suggested that the heir apparent should replace the vice president, especially when they sit in the Senate, because the vice president isn't really anything else than just the pre presiding officer of the Senate when he's present. Um, otherwise, it's the pro temp. Uh, and in that regard, the heir would be given access to um, political processes that would be useful to them, experiential-wise, uh, when they take over from their, from their parent. Um, so there are a few things we need to do, many pre uh, steps you need to take before this is able to take place. But I do see those things as being necessary, educating the populace on the history of political thought of the founding fathers and the uh, political standpoint of Britain at the time, who George III, our last monarch was, why his family was on the throne in the first place, and definitely the political transformations in England uh, in the preceding century. Those are very important. Okay. So how can our listeners out there support your party? Well, we have a, a website. Um, you can look us up on pretty much any, uh, any platform. It's the United Monarchist Party of America, uh, com. So it's not anything special. Um, the, that website will link to our Facebook page. We also have a private, uh, Facebook a group that it, they're all interconnected and interlinked. Uh, the Facebook page is under the same name, United Monarchist Party of America, or UMP for short. Um, and we also have a, uh, a Patreon that you can support us uh, if you want. And really, none of us keep any of these funds. These funds are just used 
to um, pay for ads on Facebook or ads anywhere else to get the message further out, to um, pay compensation to people whom we um, request artwork or other um, services from if we need any help, because right now we're just a volunteer base. Um, so yeah, all of those uh, things you can find us on our website, on Facebook, on Patreon, and it would all be uh, it'd be great help if people find us on those things. Excellent, excellent. We can direct people there. Austin, thank you so much for sharing your views on this podcast today. We wish you and your party all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. Have a great day. You as well.